Chapter 5 of Adventures of the Infallible Godal by Frederick Irving Anderson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Fifth Tube 1. It will be observed, noted the pharmacopoeia, that the size of the drops of different liquids bears no relation to their density. Sulfuric acid is stated by Durand to yield ninety drops to the fluid drachm while water yields but 45, and oil of anise, according to Professor Proctor, 85. It follows, then, that the weight of the drop varies with most liquids, but few experiments on this subject have been recorded, the oldest being contained in Moore's Pharmacopoeia Universalis of 1845. More accessible to the American and English student are the results of Bernoulli, and so on. Godal, the infallible Godal, did not have the printed page before him, but he had visualized it in one glance only a few hours before, and the imprint was still fresh on his memory. Reduced to elementals, a drop of liquid varies in size from one-third to one and one-half minims. Godal split the difference and called a drop and a minim synonymous for his purpose. Later, if he were so minded, he might arrive at precise results by means of atomic weights, he began a lightning mental calculation as he sat idly stirring his beer of pilsen with a tiny thermometer which the proprietor of this hanover square resort served with each stein of beer it should be fifty-two degrees fahrenheit my friend said the master of the house who in passing saw that godal was seemingly intent on the thermometer godal was not intent at all on the tiny thread of mercury Rather, he was studying the drops of golden-brown liquid rolling off the pointed end of the glass instrument. However, it was as much as one's life was worth to dispute the proper temperature of beer at this eating place, and Godal smiled childish acquiescence and explained that he was awaiting with impatience the rise of half a degree of temperature before he indulged his thirst. It should be just such a color, he mused, possibly a little more inclined to orange and a little syrupy when stone-cold. And with his head thrown back and his eyes shut, he completed his calculation. There should be sixty-one thousand four hundred and forty such drops to the gallon, at ten cents a drop. Tut-tut! he exclaimed to himself, conscious of feeling exceedingly foolish. It was so simple, so insolently obvious. Like all great inventions and discoveries, once they have been uncovered, this was one of the three tasks he had dreamed of, each worthy to be the adventure of a lifetime. Three tasks he had dreamed of, as a poet dreams of a sonnet that shall some day flow from his pen with liquid cadence, as an author dreams of his masterpiece, the untold story, as an artist dreams of a picture with an atmosphere beyond the limits of known pigments. One was the Julius Tower, where at the bottom of a well lay thirty millions in coined golden eagles, hoarded by an emperor more medieval than modern, against the time when he must resume the siege of Paris. The second was the fabled chain of the Incas, one hundred fathoms of yellow gold beaten into links. It lies purple with age in the depths of a bottomless lake ten thousand feet in the clouds of the Peruvian Andes. And the third, it was this nectar of the gods, more potent, more precious than the rarest of collected vintages. The Julius Tower and the fabled chain were remote, the one guarded by an alien army, 
the other guarded by superstition. But this nectar lay within a stone's throw of where Godal sat now studying with the fascination of a great discovery the tiny drops of liquid falling from the tip of the glass thermometer, each drop shaping itself into a perfect sphere under stress of the same immutable laws that govern the suns. Ah! cried a voice of truculence behind him, and his precious mug of beer was unceremoniously snatched away from the hand of Godal by Herschmaltz. In his abstraction, the master rogue had violated a rule of the house. The temperature of the brew had climbed to sixty. Godal, with an amused smile, watched the testy old host adjust the temperature of a fresh mug to a nicety, and when the mug was returned to him, he drank deep at the other's insistent command. Every man to his own religion, thought Godal. His is fifty-two degrees Fahrenheit. Mine is gold. Godal, swinging his cane with a merry lilt, picked his way up the crooked street under the elevated to Wall Street. To the east, the street was lined with grimy warehouses. To the west, it was lined with marble. To the west was the heart of gold. Godal turned west. Every window concealed a nest of aristocratic pirates plotting and scheming for more gold. In the street, the hoi polloi were running errands for them, enviously cognizant of the shiny silk hats and limousines of their employers. Gold bought everything the heart could desire. Gold attracted everything with invisible lines of force radiating on all sides. An express wagon was backed up to the curb, and curious pedestrians were peering over each other's shoulders, attracted and held spellbound by no more rare a sight than a pyramid of rough pine boxes, each as big as a shoebox, piled on the pavement. The boxes contained gold, ingots of gold. If the guards, who stood on each side of the sweating porters carrying the boxes inside, had not looked so capable, it was more than likely that many individuals in the crowd would have remembered that they had been born thieves thousands of years ago, and fought madly for the possession of this yellow stuff. It should obey the laws of gravity and be subject to the stress of vacuum, mused Godall, still delighted with the obvious idea he had discovered over his beer in Hanover Square. I think, he wandered on ruminatively, I think I shall reduce it to its absolute atom and beat it into a freeze for the walls of my study. Sixty-one thousand drops to the gallon. It should make a freeze at least four inches wide. And why not? He thought abruptly, as though some sprite in him had snickered at the grotesque idea. It was in this way that the dead and buried races of the Andes prized the yellow metal, not as a vulgar medium of trade and exchange, but as a symbol of kingship, a thing to be possessed only by a king. They decorated the walls of their royal palaces with bands of beaten gold. It must have been very satisfactory, thought Godal, pursuing his whimsical idea, at least, he added as an afterthought, for the kings. He paused at the curb, and his aesthetic eye sought not the boxes of gold that lay on the pavement, but the exquisite lines of the little structure of which the barred door stood open to receive the treasure. The building was no bigger than a penthouse on the roof of any of the surrounding skyscrapers, yet with its pure lines and its stones mellowed with the wash of time, it was a polished gem in a raw setting. It stands, as any one may see, like a little Quaker lady drawing her shawl timidly about her to shut out the noise and clamor of the world crowding in on all sides. On one side rises a blank wall twenty or more stories in height. On the other, 
The cold gray pile of the sub-treasury stands guard and stolid and sullen as the great pyramid itself. The windows were barred, so that even a bird might not enter. The door was steel-studded. The very stones seemed to cluster together as if to hide their seams from prying eyes. The cornices were ample for a flood, and the tiles of the roof were as capacious as saucers. Before the days when electrolytic chemistry came to the aid of the crude agencies of earth, air, fire, and water, the very smoke that emerged from the blackened chimneys was well worth gathering, to be melted down in a crucible to yield its button of gold. The whole represented the idea of a strong house of a past age. It was the assay office of the United States that Godall regarded. If, thought Godall delightedly, as his eye caressed the picture, if it were painted on china, I am afraid, friend Godall, you would not sleep until the plate was secure in your possession. The hour of one was suddenly, stridently ushered in by a crash of steam-riveting hammers, like the rattle of machine guns. Little apes of men, high in the air back of the little building, were driving home the last of the roof girders of a tiny chimney-like skyscraper, which in several months' time was to absorb the functions with ultra-modern methods so long and so honorably exercised by the beautiful little house in the street, the old assay office. Godall passed on, and shortly was in his lodgings. There was mellow contentment here, something he prized above all things, and he sighed to think that he would not know this comfort again for weeks. That same day, as an expert electrician named Dalog, with a pronounced Danish accent, he presented his union card and obtained employment at sixty cents an hour. Things worth doing were worth doing well in his philosophy, and though he hated soiled fingers and callous hands and walking delegates, he must regard the verities. Two. The spick-and-span new assay office of the United States is sometimes described as the house without a front door. Indeed, it has no front door, but it has two back doors and gets along very well at that. In reality, it occupies two backyards, balancing itself nicely on the party line between a parcel of land fronting on Wall Street and another on Pine. The Wall Street entrance is effected through the dingy halls of the now tenantless assay office of the olden time. On the Pine Street side, a tall iron paling suggests to the passerby that something more precious than bricks and mortar is contained within. There is a wicked gate of ornamental iron in the fence, wide enough to admit two men abreast, or to allow the passage of the hand-trucks laden with boxes of gold and silver bullion. A long wooden ramp, uncovered, a temporary structure connects the street with a window in the second story of the new building, which for the time is serving the purpose of a door. Some day the precious parcel of land standing between the gaunt face of the new building and the street will be occupied by a pretentious façade, and then the magnificent plant that turns out pure gold day and night at the rate of some forty million dollars a year will be lost to view entirely. Now to the street passenger it suggests nothing of its functions, suggests less, in fact, to the imagination than the pine boxes laden with bullion, whose appearance daily is always calculated to draw a breathless audience. The walls are sheer, without architectural embellishment of any kind. It is, in fact, nothing more than the rear of a skyscraper, some day to be given a face. It was four o'clock in the afternoon of a June day. The upper windows of the assay office stood open, 
and through the apertures there emerged a fine sustained hum, like the note of some faraway violin. It told the passer-by that the motor generators of the electrolytic plant within were churning at their eternal task of separating gold from dross. A party of four men were in the act of leaving the place on the Pine Street side. One was the superintendent of the plant, and another the master refiner, the two men responsible for the wealth within. Two men whose books were balanced each year on a set of scales that will weigh a long ton or a lead-pencil mark with equal nicety. A third man of the party was a Canadian government official who had come down from Ottawa to inspect this latest monument to the science of electrolytic chemistry. He was not interested in the assay office as a strong house. It had long ago passed into tradition that the mint of the United States, with its accessories, is inviolable and to ask whether this latest plant of its kind in the world were burglar-proof would be to laugh. The fourth member of the party was the chief of a division of the United States Secret Service, who in passing through the city had run down to find out whether guinea gold owed its particular color to a unique atomic structure or to the presence of a trace of silver. On the answer hung the fate of two rascals he had laid by the heels. "'No, you haven't the idea yet.' the master refiner was saying to the Canadian official, we superimpose a low-frequency alternating current on the direct current for the purpose of shaking out the bubbles of gas that otherwise would prove very troublesome. That is all due to a small percentage of silver, the superintendent was explaining to the secret agent, and the latter was gnawing his mustache in chagrin, for the answer meant that he had barked a coon up the wrong tree. At this point, an incident occurred seemingly trivial in itself, the significance of which, however, struck the four with the force of a thunderbolt a few hours later on that momentous evening. It had to do with the secret agent's enforced moderation in the matter of tobacco. His physician had ordered him to cut his nicotine allowance down to three cigars a day, and now, in the first throes of his abstention, he was as cross as a bear with a sore toe. The whiff of an Irishman's cutty-pipe smote his nostrils as the little party passed through the gate. Now there is something about the exotic fragrance of a well-seasoned cutty-pipe that induces in those who happen to be in its immediate neighborhood an almost supernormal desire for a puff of the weed. Whether it was the intensive quality of the tobacco itself, the ripeness of the clay cutty-pipe, or the fact that the cutty-pipe is subjected to a forced draft by reason of the extreme abbreviation of its stem, Whichever of these elementary causes it might have been, the psychological effect was the same. The secret agent stared vacantly about him. A mud-rat, so the brown-jeaned scavengers whose business it is to scoop mud out of the catch-basins are known, was igniting a fresh charge of tobacco in the lee of his mud-cart, a watertight affair of sheet steel. The tempted one drew a cigar from his pocket and regarded it with a scowl. It's the vile pipe that scavenger is hitting up as though it were a blast furnace, explained the secret agent guiltily as he bit off the end of his cigar. This is my after-dinner pill. Here goes. He searched his pockets for a match, forgetting that he had adopted the practice of traveling matchless to make life easier. He appealed to his three companions, but they could not scare up a match among them. What? ejaculated the secret agent incredulously. Do you mean to say there are three able-bodied men in one bunch who turn up their noses at tobacco? I have heard, he went on, with infinite sarcasm, of isolated instances of individuals like our friend Dr. Pease, for example, 
but three men in one spot. I am amazed. It was true, none the less. Would you honor me with a light? said the secret agent, stepping over to the mud rat and touching him on the shoulder, interrupting that worthy in the act of dumping a scoopful of subterranean mud into the capacious bottom of his cart. You seem to be the only man in my class around here, he added facetiously. We have a vice or two in common. My friends, he said, airily indicating the three beside him, are pale angels. The mud rat surveyed the four with an air of vague curiosity. He went through the pockets of his jeans, but his hands came away empty. So, with the freemasonry of smokers, he offered the other the live coal in his cutty-pipe for a light, which the agent accepted gracefully. A most remarkable mud-rat, commented the secret agent. Did you notice that he wore rubber gloves? I shouldn't be surprised to learn that he patronized a manicure on holidays. As a matter of fact, this particular mud-rat did not confine his patronage of manicures to holidays. He had the finest set of fingers in Greater New York. Also, noted the professional thief-chaser mechanically, his horse, which is a little curbed on the nigh side, has the number 246 burned in its hooves. "'Yours must be a very interesting life,' commented the bland Canadian, who had never before had the good fortune to dally with a real secret agent. "'It has its drawbacks at times,' said the other, smiling over his cigar. A man gets into this stupid habit of noting details, until at the end of the day his head is so muddled with facts for cataloguing that he can't sleep. An hour passed, and still Pine Street, in front of the back window that is used as a door, gave no hint of the history then in the making to mark this day in the annals of crime. At the stroke of five the tall buildings vomited forth their hives of workers. The Wall Street district empties itself swiftly at this period of the year, when there are still several hours of daylight for sports afield before dinner for the army of clerks. Fifteen minutes later only a thin stream remained of the flood that had overflowed the sidewalks. A pushcart man, catering to messenger boys and the open-air brokers of the curb, was resting on his cart taking stock of his day's business. The mud-rat who worked at his unsavory calling with the aid of rubber gloves was still industriously burrowing in the depths of the manhole. A white-suited street-sweeper, a son of sunny Italy, with his naturalization papers in his pocket, was pursuing his task to the tune of the miserere, with an insistent accenting of the grace-note at the antipenalt. A policeman or two swung along the curb. A truck with wheels as big as a merry-go-round, drawn by ten spans of horses, bearing a sixty-ton girder for the new equitable building round the corner, rolled past the scene like a juggernaut. One, even one with the sharp eyes of a secret agent, might have photographed the scene at this moment and still overlooked the obvious clue to the situation. The drama was in full swing. It was nearing the hour of six when the curtain came down on the big act, marked, as is usual, by the gentle tinkling of a bell. On the seventh floor of the assay office a man was seen to stop his task suddenly at the sound of the bell and to look at the switchboard standing in the west side of the room. He crossed the room hurriedly, disappearing. He reappeared at the window, staring blankly and rubbing his eyes. Two miles away, one minute later, a liveried page, silver salver in hand, passed through the corridors and parlors of the Holland House, droning wearily, Mr. Hamilton, Mr. Hamilton. They are paging you, said the open-eared secret agent to the young master refiner. Here, boy. Telephone, sir, number sixteen. And he led the master refiner to the indicated booth. 
Yes, this is Hamilton. Who is this? Jackson, you say? It doesn't sound like your voice. What's that? Say that again. Come close to the phone, man. I can't make out what you're trying. Empty, you say? The young scientist looked blankly at the narrow walls of the booth that held him. Then with a peremptory tone in his voice, Who is this? Where are you? What is this tomfoolery, anyway? He pressed the receiver to his ear, his heart thumping. Empty? The tank is empty? You are crazy, man. Evidently the voice at the other end of the wire had become incoherent. Jackson, cried Hamilton sharply, you are lying. You are seeing things. Can you understand me? He waited for the answer, which did not come. Only a suppressed gasp through the telephone. Jackson, he cried, listen to me. Turn round and walk to the tank. Then come back and tell me what you see. Boy, he shouted through the half-open door of the booth. A dozen pages rushed for the door. Tell Mr. Whitaker to come see me at once. He is the man with the red mustache who is sitting on the ottoman in the smoking-room. When Whitaker, the secret agent, thrust his head in the door, he was met by Hamilton bounding out. Hamilton's face told the agent that something big was afoot, and as the other dashed out he followed. Hamilton picked up Banks, the superintendent, on the way out. They left the Canadian gasping and alone. The nice little dinner for four that had been planned for the evening was off. The three officials were half a dozen blocks downtown in a taxicab before the Canadian guest of honor woke up to the fact that as the white-faced refiner had stated bluntly, something was afoot that was not his affair. The street scene that met the eyes of the three as they tumbled out of their cab in Pine Street and ran up the long ramp leading to the door was much the same as when they had passed out a short time before. The same actors and different persons, that was all. It was not until three days later that the story leaked out, and crowds surrounded the block, gazing at the gaunt assay office as they were wont in lesser numbers to gaze at the rough pine boxes laden with gold. While the dump cart driver and the driver of a steel truck were disputing the right-of-way at the Nassau Street corner, a little group of dumbfounded men stood about a huge porcelain tank on the seventh floor of the building. From their odd silence the tank might have been a coffin. The tank was empty. Forty gallons of gold, held suspended in an acid solution of the consistency of good beer at just the right temperature, had evaporated into thin air. Forty gallons! Sixty-one thousand drops to the gallon, at ten cents a drop. Of it now there remained only a few dirty pools settling in the unevenness of the lining. Hanging suspended like washing on the line were two parallel rows of golden shingles. On one line they were covered with canvas, black with the scum of dross. On the other the precious metal, still wet and steaming, had formed itself into beautiful branching crystals. But the nectar, the nectar of the gods, through which the dense electric current worked in their eternal process of purifying, selecting, rejecting, the nectar of the gods was gone. 3. The three officials looked at each other foolishly. Each in his own way, according to his lights and his training, was doing his utmost to grasp the idea that presented itself with the force of a sledgehammer blow. According to the testimony of the switchboard, between the hours of four and six o'clock on this June afternoon, in the year of grace 1913, forty gallons of piping hot gold-plating solution, valued at ten cents the drop, six thousand dollars the gallon, a quarter of a million dollars the bulk, 
had been surreptitiously removed by a thief, undoubtedly a thief, so much was obvious, from the inviolable precincts of the New York Assay Office, adjunct to the United States Mint. Jackson, the assistant refiner on night duty, warned of the interrupted electric current by the bell on the switchboard, was the first to give the alarm. At first blush, it would seem that a ton of hay wrapped up in one package would be far easier loot as to bulk. Counting two grains of gold to a drop of liquor, the very weight of the stuff would have been over 10,000 troy ounces, over 800 pounds, and its bulk, counting seven gallons to the cubic foot, would have been nearly six cubic feet, the size of a very respectable block of granite. Yet 800 pounds, six cubic feet of the stuff, a quarter of a million dollars, had unquestionably departed without leaving a trace of its path. As has been said, the assay office possesses two perfectly serviceable means of exit and ingress, back doors, it is true, but still doors. The structure possesses possibly fifty windows. Whitaker raised a window and peered out. The walls were as sheer as the polished sides of an upright piano. That the intruder might have entered by a window was a childish suggestion quickly dismissed. The doors were at all times of day and night guarded by intricate mechanical contrivances of which no one man knew all his secrets. In addition there were the human guards, with their army six-shooters, of the peculiarly business-like aspect that tempts one to refer to them as guns. The three officials all tried to say something after a time, but the thing was beyond words so soon after the impact. The secret agent, trained for such occasions, was the first to collect his wits. He began examining the rifled tank. He had not gone far before he began to swear softly to himself. The tank was composed of porcelain and a steel retainer. He pointed to the two rods that ran parallel lengthwise of the empty receptacle. These two rods were covered with a saddle of yellow metal throughout their extent. Suspended from the rods were hooks roughly cut out of the same sheet of metal. Suspended from the hooks on one rod were some fifty canvas sacks, each the size of a man's sock. They contained crude bullion, from which the plating solution extracted its pure gold. On the other rod, suspended from similar hooks, were yellow plates ten or twelve inches long, varying from one-eighth to an inch thick, covered with a fine encrustation of yellow crystals, clustering together like grains of damp sugar. "'What is all this stuff?' he asked bluntly, turning to his companions who had sprung to his side when he exclaimed, "'Is it gold?' The two men nodded assent. It was solid gold, pure gold, even to the roughly hewn hooks. The very electrical connections were of gold. "'What's it worth?' demanded Whittaker. "'I could tell you in a second from my books,' began the superintendent. "'Never mind your books. A million? The superintendent shook his head. He could not yet grasp details. "'Half a million? Easily,' responded the refiner. "'Yes, quite that, I should say.' Whitaker lifted one of the encrusted plates, still wet from the solution in which it had been immersed so short a time before. He swung it on his finger by means of its golden hook. "'Doesn't strike you as a bit strange,' he said, "'that a thief with wit enough to make away with six hundred pounds of your precious juice "'should have left behind half a million dollars in raw gold "'lying loose in the middle of a room?' This was a nut that for the time being resisted cracking. The secret agent said, "Hm," and fingered his vest pocket for the interdicted cigar, which was not there. "'In emergencies,' he said absent-mindedly, "'it is justifiable.' 
He turned to Banks and added, See that no one leaves this building until I return. The first thing to do, it's foolish, but it must be done, is to round up all your employees and bring them here. I suppose all of them knocked off for the day with a clean shower. Yes, all of the men had passed through the changing room, emerging therefrom after a shower bath, a fresh suit of clothes, and an inspection. Such is the daily routine. Whitaker walked thoughtfully down the ramp to the street, and sought out a shop where he might procure fuel for thoughts, cigars, long, strong, and black. Then he felt better. As he turned into Pine Street from Nassau, he noted a small boy, of the free tribe of street urchins, holding up one dirty foot and howling with pain. Whitaker's methodical mind noted that the foot was of a singularly blotched appearance, as though from a burn but he had far weightier things on hand than rescuing small boys in distress. The details of the start of the investigation were soon put through when he re-entered the office. Every employee of the institution was rounded up, though it was ten o'clock before the last startled porter was led protesting through the stern officials and put to the question. The trail was blank. "'It's a blessed thing we have got you with us,' said Banks, who had been biting his fingernails since the opening of the drama. It kind of takes off the curse. He looked at Whitaker, truly thankful that so broad a pair of shoulders was there to take the burden. Hm, said Whitaker, who was studying the toes of his shoes, as though they contained the answer to the riddle. It is quite evident, he began, that eight hundred pounds of gold, especially in a fluid state, did not get up and walk off without help. I think, he said, rising, that before we go farther, I will take lessons in electrolytic chemistry. We haven't lost much time on this case, and we can afford to waste a few minutes getting at the fundamentals. They retired to the seventh floor, the floor of the yawning porcelain tank, and in a short time Whitaker was in possession of the facts. It was a simple system when all is said and done, this system of refining gold, which had been worked out by the greatest students of the time. The secret agent was put through the elementals of the process of transmuting gold from the alloy by means of the electric current. "'Very clever indeed,' remarked Whittaker. "'Also, gentlemen, let me add that it is very clever indeed to lock up gold bars downstairs in safes that cost a fortune, and leave a tank full of the stuff standing in the center of an unprotected room like this. But who could come seven stories up in the air and get away with stuff of such bulk?' querulously interjected Hamilton. "'The thing is preposterous.' The preposterous thing, said Whitaker with his drawl, has occurred, apparently under your very noses, and from the looks of things, the fact that the liquor was steaming hot did not interfere with the plans of the thief in the least. What is that collection of pipes? He indicated a nest of black-varnished iron pipes running along the outside of the tank. Those are the conduits to carry the electric wires, explained the master refiner. No sooner were the words out of his mouth than he exclaimed aloud and leaped into the empty tank, running his fingers with feverish haste over the conduit outlets. "'By God, I've got it!' he cried, his voice a high falsetto under stress of his excitement. "'Hand me a portable light, quick!' With an electric bulb at the end of a portable cord, he inspected every inch of the tank, more especially the outlet boxes of the electric wires. Four tubes were required to carry the electric current. There were five. The fifth was empty of wires. So cunningly concealed it lay behind an elbow joint that only eyes sharpened by the idea born of genius could have detected it. 
With a cry of triumph, the refiner dashed to the door and down the stone stairs. He was at the panel of the switchboard at the converting room, where the electric current is properly tuned for its task of assaying. There were only four conduits leading from the upper floor. The fifth had lost itself somewhere among the studdings and joints of concrete and steel. The astonished Whitaker, finding his recently acquired knowledge insufficient to follow the leaping mind of Hamilton, finally seized that individual and cornered him. "'What is it?' he cried. "'It's as plain as the nose on a man's face,' cried Hamilton. "'The fifth tube! Good heavens, man, are you so stupid? The fifth tube could drain that tank of its last drop by siphoning it out.' He broke away, cheering. They have taken our gold out of the tank, but they haven't got it away from the building yet. Find out where that fifth tube runs to, and there you will find our gold. Through the simple means of a siphon, their forty gallons of precious liquor could have been removed through an aperture scarcely larger than a pinhole. The dawn was beginning to break. Whitaker's mind, clogged by its abnormal meal of technical details, was beginning to run cleanly again. "'Stop!' cried Whitaker. "'I am in charge of this affair. I want you to answer my questions. In the first place,' he cried, seizing the refiner by the arm and twisting his hand above his head, "'what is the matter with your hands?' Hamilton's hands, where he had been pawing about in the electrolytic tank, were stained brown, as though from cautery. They were drawn with pain, though in his excitement up to this moment he had not noticed it. "'Cyanide of potassium!' "'Where did it come from? Quick!' Oh, you fool! The tank! The tank, of course! The process! I went all through it with you. The tank contained chloride of gold dissolved in cyanide of potassium. Does it hurt? inquired Whitaker with an irritating slowness. Hurt? Do you think you can take a bath in red-hot acid and— Help me trace that extra tube. How the deuce do you suppose that tube ever got there? Instantly the picture of a small burned foot came before Whitaker, an inspiration. He held the struggling Hamilton as in a vice. "'If you will sit still three minutes,' said Whitaker, his eye gleaming, and a forbidden cigar cocked fiercely, "'I will guarantee to lead you to the place where your precious gold is, or was. I won't promise which. Or here, come along with me,' he said as an afterthought, and the pair started for the street on the run. Whitaker came to a stop on the corner where he had seen the barefooted boy yelling with pain. "'What's that?' he asked, pointing to a wet spot on the pavement, where a liquid had collected in the ruck about a sewer opening. Hamilton dug his hands on the dirt and sprang up with a cry. In the mud were tiny needles of an orange-yellow gold. "'There it is! There's our gold!' he cried ecstatically, and then, with a despairing gesture, "'In the sewer!' Whitaker was taking advantage of the refiner's desolation to quiz an interested policeman. Yes, it was a fact that a steel dump cart and a steel derrick wagon had brushed hubs at this corner about six o'clock, and that the shock had washed as much as a bucketful of mud out of the dump cart. Did the policeman happen to have the names of the drivers? He did, because there had ensued quite a flow of language over the accident, but no arrests. The derrick wagon belonged to the Degnan Company, and the dump cart was one of the wagons of the General Light and Power Company. Whitaker broke into an easy laugh. Half an hour later, the foreman of the stables of the general company was on the carpet before the fierce cigar. Could he produce dump cart number 36, to which Whitaker blew rings about his head, was attached a horse with a slight curve in its nigh hind leg. The horse, number 246, was driven by a man who wore rubber gloves, thus the expert thief-catcher. Simple as falling off a log, 
Whitaker's gesture seemed to say as he put the question to the stable boss. Then he said, It all goes to show that the average thief loses in the long run in the battle of wits because he leaves some apparently inconsequential clue on his trail, some tiny clue that is as broad as a state road to a trained intelligence. If, for instance, he said, forgetting for the moment the man standing before him twirling his hat in his hands, if, for instance, that mud-rat had not played on my one weakness by blowing the smoke from his infernal cutty into my face, the chances are he would have given me a long chase. "'The mud-rat!' exclaimed the two officials in unison. The trained intelligence accepted their implied and wondering admiration of his powers of divination with a nod, and turned again to the stable-boss. "'Now, my man,' he said, "'I want dump-cart number thirty-six, the man who was driving it this afternoon, and the horse, here at the gate in fifteen minutes. I will send one of my men with you.' "'If you can tell me where to lay hands on it, sir,' said the stable-boss, still rotating his hat, "'we would be much obliged to you, sir. Dumpcart thirty-six was stolen from the stables this noon, and we just set out a general alarm for it through the police, when your man nabbed me.' At this point in the prosecution of the investigation of the looting of the assay office of its liquid assets, the irresistible force of the trained intelligence in charge met with an immovable post. It never got much farther. The missing wagon was found, abandoned in the Newark meadows, the humane driver having provided the horse liberally with grain and hay before departing. Curiously enough, the interior of the wagon had been coated with some acid-proof varnish. In the bottom, crystallized by the cold, was a handful of needles of gold, to show that dump-cart number 36 was indeed the receptacle in which the thief had carted off forty gallons of gold worth ten cents a drop. It was a simple matter to trace the mysterious pipe from the gold tank through the junction boxes of the electric system to the electrical manhole in the street. Evidences were numerous that this extra conduit had been installed by the far-thinking thief at some time during the period when the building was in the process of erection. In the bottom of the manhole, were found a few pints of the precious stuff that had been siphoned down through seven floors to the street by the adroit expedient of breaking open a concealed plug. "'I must confess I am not much of a scientist,' said Whitaker a week later, "'and before we turn the page on this subject I want to find out one thing. Admitting that our dump-cart friend got away with a quarter of a million dollars worth of gold in the form of mud, what value would it be to him? How could he get the gold out of it? An indulgent smile curled Hamilton's lips. The process of extracting gold from mud is one of the simplest in chemistry and mechanics, and the joke is, he went on, screwing up the corners of his mouth, that when that crafty mud rat has manufactured it into bullion again, he will probably have the supreme gall of bringing it here and asking us to buy it. The devil of it is that we shall have to buy it, too. At this remote date, the assay office officials are still in doubt whether they have repurchased their stolen treasure. It is worthwhile to say in passing that the surety companies responsible for the men responsible for the treasure of the government assay office are still engaged in suing each other and the various contractors responsible for fitting and inspecting the interior of the new building. The robbery undoubtedly had been planned and the properties arranged months ahead of time. But aside from the fact that an expert electrician named Dalog, who had been employed on the premises at odd times, a man with a pronounced Danish accent, turned up hopelessly missing, 
the case has not progressed. It promises in time to become as celebrated in court annals as the antique litigation of Jarndyce versus Jarndyce. Whitaker seldom confessed his failures, but several months later, over cigars in the library of his friend Godall the Exquisite, he related the story, unabridged, of the most remarkable bit of thievery in his experience. It was his secret hope that the acute mind of this celebrated dilettante, who had many times pointed his researches with astounding analyses, might help to the solution. Godall laughed. Let us go below the surface, said Godall. Abolish the lure of gold, and the world would be born good again. Your mudrat is the apotheosis of the pickpocket. How much better they managed the whole thing ten thousand years ago. To the remote races of the Andes, gold was not a vulgar medium of trade and exchange. It was a symbol of kingship, a thing to be possessed only by kings. In my small way, said Godall, depreciatingly, with a wave of his fine hands, I have erected a monument to the Incas in this room. My frieze, have you noticed it? A poor thing. Where I have used grains of gold, they used pounds. But to me it symbolizes the same poetic idea. Will you join me in a fresh cigar? Ah, I beg your pardon. One's physician is a tyrant. End of the Fifth Tube